Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On today's episode, I try to ruin Christmas. It's all so, clickbait nowadays. Yeah. Baptist Church has voted to accept the LGBT community, putting them actually at odds now with many in their denomination. Churches are a cornerstone of American life. Do you know what the internet desperately needs? More clickbait. clickbait. I'm Chris Prince, and this is Clickbait Church, a podcast about culture, how the church fits into it, and what we can learn from each other. Listen up. You won't believe your ears. Well, hey there, I'm Chris, and I'm ready to blow up everything you've ever thought about Christmas. Okay, that's a little dramatic, but I am going to talk about why the war on Christmas is pointless, some aspects of the Christmas story that we get wrong often, and why it matters. Let's dive in. Look, here's the deal. I've got to preface this episode up front because otherwise I'll actually get my first round of hate mail. Clickbaitchurchpod at gmail.com if you want to send some, I'll read it on the air. But seriously, here's my disclaimer. I'll be making some strong statements in this episode about Christmas, the season, and the story of Christ's birth. Everything that I share will be backed up with resources and references in the show notes or mentioned on air. And if it's not 100% fact, I'll say that and back up my opinion with references as well. If the story of Christ's birth that I share doesn't line up with what you have heard, whether by your parents or your pastor, that doesn't mean they are bad people. False facts of stories have been told and retold for hundreds of years because it's easier than doing the research. And in fact, even while researching for this episode, I found more things I didn't realize I had wrong. And lastly, I want to say that sometimes we can find ourselves in a place where we second guess anything that comes up as different from the Bible that we remember hearing and never really researched ourselves. Historical precedence and what language means in the Bible is important to any story that we read through the eyes of translators with an agenda or a Western cultural view of stories. There is nothing wrong. In fact, there is wisdom in trusting scholars and those who have put years of research and work into studying specific areas of the Bible to inform others. All scripture read will be in the King James Version unless otherwise stated. Now, let's jump into this mess. So let's start at the beginning of the Christmas story and work our way through some untruths that we have probably all repeated over the years. The story of Christmas didn't happen over the span of one long night. In fact, the story we normally tell all in one sitting happened over the span of many years. Better yet, Mary didn't even give birth to Jesus the night that she and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem. Luke 2, 6 says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Luke 2.21 says that eight days after his birth, Jesus was circumcised, and at least 40 days later, they took Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. Now, where do we get the 40 days later? Well, in Leviticus 12, it states that a woman who gives birth to a son remains impure for 40 days. And Luke 2.22 starts, and when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. 
But what about the shepherds? When did they show up? Well, probably the same night of Jesus' birth or within a couple of days. What about the wise men? Well, we'll get to more of their story in a moment, but it was likely up to two years before the wise men showed up. According to Bill Jones, a professor at Columbia International University, in his book, Putting Together the Puzzle of the New Testament, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus returned to Nazareth, and the wise men showed up sometime in the next two years. Why two years exactly? Well, Matthew 16 tells us that Herod killed all the children who were two years and younger based off of the wise men's statements of when the star began to show. They met Herod before they ever made it to Jesus. Now, before we get into shepherd and wise men, let's go back to the night of the birth. How is the story typically told? Well, it's that Mary and Joseph arrived into town and were turned away from every inn. So they were led to one of the stables, and there, among the animals, Mary gave birth to Jesus. But in the words of Luke Skywalker, Every word of what you just said was wrong. Let's break it down. Let's talk about the turned away from every inn part first. I posted about this on social media last week, of course, making sure to add the word fact into it to get people riled up. And, well, it worked. But here are the facts. According to Luke 2.6, they did not have the baby the first day that they were there. Luke 2.7 tells us that Mary laid Jesus in a manger because there was no room in the inn. But here's the thing. The word inn doesn't mean public hotel like we think. In fact, inns were only uh, found on major roads, and Bethlehem was considered a ghost town in relevance to the size of cities. The word translated to inn in Luke is kataluma. It's used in scripture three times. Once here, translated as inn, and the other two times it's translated as guest chamber. In Mark 14, 14 and Luke 22, 11, Jesus tells his disciples to go find the guest chamber or upper room to eat Passover at. This was what we know as the Last Supper. It happened in the guest room of a stranger's home. In fact, later in Luke 10, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he uses the word pandochian, meaning a place in which all travelers are received, a hotel, an inn. Now let's go a step further. According to the Old World Trade Route Glossary, the definition of the Greek word kataluma is the spare or upper room in a private house or in a village where travelers received hospitality and where no payment was expected. It was a private lodging, which is distinct from that in a public inn. The word pandochian, however, has a definition of an inn used for the shelter of strangers a common dormitory with no separate rooms allotted to individual travers. It was a hospice, a lodging place, a hostel, an inn, or a rest house. More importantly, however, is the historical and social context that has to be taken into consideration with the story. Dr. Kenneth Bailey, renowned for his studies of first century Palestinians, had this to say about Joseph arriving into Bethlehem. Even if he had never been there before, he can appear suddenly at the home of a distant cousin, recite his genealogy, and he is among friends. Joseph had only to say, I am Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Mathon, son of Eleazar, the son of Iliad, and the immediate response must have been, you are welcome, what can we do for you? If Joseph did have some member of the extended family resident in the village, he was honor-bound to seek them out. Furthermore, if he did not have family or friends in the village, as a member of the famous house of David, for the sake of David, he would still be welcomed into almost any village home. So, what about the stable? Before we can begin to discuss if Jesus was born in a stable, we need to make sure that we understand the design of Palestinian homes. As Dr. Bailey explores in his paper, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, a majority of families lived in a single-room house. 
In fact, in the one-room peasant home of Palestine, Palestine and Lebanon, the manger is built into the floor of the house. The standard one-room village home consists of a living area for the family. Mangers built into the floor for feeding the animals, mostly at night, and a small area approximately four feet lower than the living area into which the family cow or donkey is brought in at night, what we would call a stable. In Matthew 5.15, Jesus references this one-room house stating that a lamp is put on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. The animals being kept in the lower level of the house is also referenced in Luke 13.10-17, stating that the animals would be brought into the house at night and let out to eat in the morning. Thus, in the case of Luke 2.7, any Palestinian reading the phrase, she laid him in a manger, would immediately assume that the birth took place in a private home because he knows that mangers are built into the floor of the raised terrace of the peasant home. Honestly, I guess it was the first home birth. More than just Dr. Bailey have stated these same statements regarding the manger being in a home. William Thompson, long-term Presbyterian missionary in Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, wrote in 1857, it is my impression that the birth actually took place in an ordinary house of some common peasant and that the baby was laid in one of the mangers, such as are still found in the dwellings of farmers in this region. And the two leading 20th century authorities on Palestinian life in the New Testament are Gustav Dahlman and EFF Bishop. Bishop comments on Luke 2.7 and writes, Perhaps recourse was had to one of the Bethlehem houses with the lower section provided for the animals, with mangers hollowed in stone, the dais being reserved for the family. Such a manger being immovable, filled with crushed straw, would do duty for a cradle. An infant might even be left in safety, especially if swaddled when the mother was absent on temporary business. Dahlman, in his study of the same verse, records, In the East today, the dwelling place of man and beast is often in one and the same room. It is, quite the, it is quite the usual thing among the peasants for the family to live, eat, and sleep on a kind of raised terrace in the one room of the house while the cattle, particularly the donkeys and oxen, have their place below on the actual floor near the door. On this floor, the mangers are fixed either to the floor or to the wall or at the edge of the terrace. So what did it mean that there was no room in the guest inn? Ian Paul, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, says it this way. It means that many, like Joseph and Mary, have traveled to Bethlehem and the family guest room is already full, probably with other relatives who arrived earlier. So Joseph and Mary must stay with the family itself in the main room of the house, and there Mary gives birth. The most natural place to lay the babies in the straw-filled depressions at the lower end of the house where the animals are fed. And the idea that they were in a stable, away from others, alone and outcast, is grammatically and culturally implausible. That's in Paul, not Chris. Well, what about animals? Where were they? Well, we can't know for sure. There isn't one mention of animals in any scriptural version of the birth of Jesus. We can assume, however, that the animals were either out of the house during the birth because Jesus was laid in the manger where the animals would eat when brought in at night or that they were moved away from that specific manger. In fact, the idea that the angels appeared in the story first was mentioned uh, in the second century in a C.S. Lewis fashion with symbolism despite no biblical precedent. Now, let's talk about these pesky wise men. First, there weren't three wise men. Well, not that we can be sure of. Matthew 2 simply says wise men came from the east. We also can't be exactly sure what wise men or magi is, as often translated, but that they most likely were king personal advisors. They were the type of people that read the stars and offered wisdom through things they called magic. Also, they probably didn't ride camels. People in northern Arabia only rode horses and camels were used as pack animals. 
Oh, yeah. And there wasn't necessarily a star that they followed from their place of origin to Jesus. History tells us that as astrologers, they saw a star that signified the prophecy of the Jewish king. They went to see King Herod because he was the king of the Jews, and they assumed the prophecy was taking place there. If they were following a star to Jesus, they wouldn't have stopped in Jerusalem to see Herod first. In fact, this is why in Matthew 2, 7, Herod asked the men when the star appeared to guess the age of Jesus. Only after the wise men left Herod did they follow a star to find Jesus. Also, the Bible never never tells us that there was a star brightly shining the night that Jesus was born either. The angels didn't... Uh, Tell the shepherds to follow a star. They said the sign would be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And by the way, their names weren't Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Those names were added to the story in the ninth century. Now, I could keep going with smaller items to discuss, like the idea that the Bible never says Mary rode into town on a donkey, or that the angels never sang to the shepherds, but I think you get the point. The biblical story of Jesus' birth differs greatly in some areas from the story told for hundreds and even thousands of years. I'm not sure why we as Christians feel the need to embellish the story to make it more dramatic, but there is more historical precedent that Jesus was born in the living room of a house filled with family than in a stable, and that's okay. That doesn't diminish the story or the gospel any. But let's move on to a more relevant topic to us in the 21st century. Let's talk about Xmas. Yeah. I said it, Xmas. It seems like you can't make it to December anymore before the Facebook articles start circulating about Xmas this and Christ being taken out of Christmas that. It's as if there is a war on Christmas and the word Christ being taken out. It all started years ago with the use of Xmas instead of Christmas. Back in 2005, Franklin Graham once said on CNN, For us as Christians, this is one of the most holy of the holidays, the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, and for people to take Christ out of Christmas. They're happy to say Merry Xmas. Let's just take Jesus out. And really, I think, a war against the name of Jesus Christ is happening. What's interesting is that the X of Xmas has nothing to do with removing Christ from the word, but rather since the year 1021, people have been using the letter X as an abbreviation for Christ. In fact, a combination symbol of the letters X and P was created for this very abbreviation as far back as 306 AD. The Oxford English Dictionary has used X as an abbreviation for Christ as far back as 1485, and in fact, many of the New Testament manuscripts used X as an abbreviation for Christ because it was the first letter uh, in the Greek language for the word Christ. So when and why did it become bad to say Xmas and consider it a war on Christ? In 2015, Joshua Furstein, a wannabe Facebook evangelist, posted a video that now has 17 million views about Starbucks and their red cups. In his video, he stated that their cup that year was solid red because Starbucks was no longer allowed to say Merry Christmas or print it on anything that they had in the store. So he told them his name was Merry Christmas to trick them, that was in hair quotes, and asked for people to start a movement. With half a million shares, the video went viral, was quickly debunked, and Furstein started getting death threats and other hate for this insane statements and personality. But it didn't matter because it hit the mark and Christians latched on. It didn't matter that Starbucks had sold a Christmas blend coffee since the 1980s. In 2016, the supposed controversial cup was back, this time in green, and Christian wage war again. 2017 came and Starbucks was hated on by Christians because there was two women holding hands, which obviously meant they were gay in a commercial. And this year, Starbucks revealed new red cups with Merry Coffee written on them, obviously a hit on Jesus by replacing Christmas with coffee. 
Well, honestly, I think it has more to do with our traditional culture war issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, and other things like that. Because there became a divide between the conservative right and the liberal left, Christians have mostly chosen one side to align with, and with that, created other items to fight over, no matter how trivial. And before you get upset about the use of the word trivial there, it is trivial, but let me explain. First, in reality, if some people chose to use Xmas first Christmas, it doesn't diminish the gospel or the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, it does nothing more than change the name or abbreviate the name of a man-made holiday and celebration. I'm not sure why we get so upset when we've already allowed the day of celebration of Jesus' birth to be consumed with commercialized traditions and holiday parties. We call it the holiday season because from Thanksgiving to New Year's, there is a ton of time off, family time, gift buying, gift giving, and parties. It's no longer about a celebration of the birth of Jesus on a random day that we chose to celebrate. It's become much more than that. Secondly, why do we put so much emphasis on the birth of Jesus in the first place? The Bible only recounts the story of Jesus' birth in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. There is a total of 70 verses of the span of three total chapters on the birth of Jesus, despite there being many chapters in every book of the Gospels about the death of Jesus. Jesus never asked us to remember his birth or celebrate it. It was picked up by the Catholic Church's nine months after March 25th, the supposed day of Jesus' crucifixion, and also the day supposedly Mary was made pregnant. It was a guess and a whim and became lore that was restated over and over for centuries until it was celebrated as a holiday. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus because it's significant to us, but really the birth of Jesus should only do one thing, point to his death. Jesus was born to die. The whole reason he was born in the way that he was is so that he could later die in an unconventional way as well. We should celebrate his death and resurrection much more than we should his birth. Lastly, as a Christian in the 21st century and specifically in the United States, I'm consistently worried that the freedom of religion will be pulled away from us sooner rather than later, not because of persecution brought on by others, but because of the actions of Christians. Persecution is standing up for what we believe in personally, but posting a meme about abortion on Facebook isn't standing up against it. It's perceiving that you are through a trivial action. When we see Christianity attacked in America, it's not because we proclaim the name of Jesus. It's because some Christian somewhere said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. Christians are looked down on and hated while other world religions are praised and protected, not because of persecution in America, but because of our outspoken nature as mostly conservative Republicans trying to build our biblically-based morals and beliefs into law that all have to follow regardless of belief. So when you get together with your family this year for Christmas and you read the story of the birth of Jesus, hopefully from the Bible and not a storybook that gets half of it wrong, focus on what we do know and how we should respond. We know that a young girl, most likely a teenager, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and became pregnant with a Savior that Joseph would later call Jesus. We know that Jesus was born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. We know that shepherds came and later wise men came, and that many were happy to see this baby born. But we also know that 33 years later, Jesus stretched out his arms on a wooden tree and gave his life so that you and I could one day receive the grace of God through his son dying on that cross. And we should respond because when he rose again on the third day, he did it so that you and I could have new life through the Holy Spirit and one day meet him in paradise. He truly was born to die. And that's why we should celebrate. And so I hope you all have a Merry Xmas. Well, that 
That's Clickbait Church, hosted by me, Chris Prince. I hope you're enjoying my little experiment. You can follow or subscribe to Clickbait Church on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or any other app that you use to get notified of every new episode. Check out clickbaitchurch.com for a list of your favorite podcast sources. This episode was written and produced by me. The theme music comes from Andrew Appleby. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.